Amen. Give the Lord one more hand. Clap of praise. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. You may take your seats in the presence of the Lord. Thank you so much, uh, Sia and Victory, uh, for serving us this morning. Um, haven't the praise and worship done an excellent job this morning? Amen. They've done a great job. Amen. Happy Father's Day from Father Abraham himself. Uh, Facebook was too funny this week, you know. Some guys were saying it's not single Mother's Day, and it's not spiritual Father's Day, it is Mother's Day. <laughs> just kidding, Father's Day. Amen. Uh, family, I'm just excited to be back. It's been a two-week break from the pulpit. Uh, feeling like... A Beginner again, uh, met Clinty, um, Pastor Clint up uh, here this morning and my tummy was just giving me that rumble in the jungle and it feels like, you know, when you first get the mic again, but it's good that a preacher never loses those butterflies. Yes, come on. Amen. Come on. Uh, this morning, uh, I am not going to preach a Father's Day message. I've preached many of those. You can go back on uh, Pod, Podbean. We have a full catalog of all my Father's Day uh, messages uh, where we spoke uh, into the topic of fatherhood. Uh, but like you all know, we have adopted an expository approach to preaching where we take every um, sermon book by book, uh, chapter by chapter. I just think it's more effective the more systematic and methodical we are uh, in our preaching. Uh, because most of you I don't get to see in the week. So on Sunday, I hope to give you the Bible. The primary uh, response, so the primary role, rather, of the preacher is to be a Bible explainer. Not here to get you clapping and excited for your breakthrough. We are here to open up the text. Amen. So... uh, My plan for the book of Psalms, because as you know, there are 150 Psalms, which means if we take on this uh, series on Psalms, we've titled it The Playlist of Life. Um, We will be starting today with Psalm 1. Next week, we start our series into the book of Ezra. And then for three or four weeks, we will deal with the book of Ezra, and then we'll pick up on Psalm 2. So we'll use the Psalms as a palate cleanser, as it were. <laughs> okay. Then we will venture on to the book of Romans. When we're done with Romans, we'll pick up on Psalm 3. And if you journey with us long enough, you'll be able to tell your kids and grandkids we've preached through and read through the whole of the Psalms. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Come on, we are in the book of Psalm, chapter 1. Turn at me, please. When you're there, please give me an Amen. Okay, so I'm just going to give you a little introduction to the book of Psalms, and then uh, just to give you a little breakaway from the technicalities, I'm going to address a specific topic that relates to the book of Psalms, and then we will get into uh, chapter 1 and the verses uh, that that follow. Didn't my wife do a good job this morning? Man, I feel like we're tiring already. She left no stone unturned, my Lord. 
Hallelujah. Psalm chapter, well, why am I saying chapter? Psalm 1, verses 1. Blessed is the man. Everybody say blessed. Blessed. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. Turn to your other neighbor and say, you're blessed. You're blessed. Amen. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And that term law does not refer to the legality of the law, the Torah, but it refers to the teaching and the commandments of the Lord. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like chaff which the wind drives away, Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Amen. Can I, can I ask, uh, can I ask uh, Pastor Clancy, if you can pray for the word this morning for me, Amen. Father, we come before you this morning once again with thankful and grateful hearts that we can be found in your presence before your throne. We thank you for your grace and mercy that brings us to this place. We pray this morning that you prepare our hearts, Lord, that this word, the seed would fall onto fertile ground. We pray for your servant, obedient to your call, your chosen one. We pray, O Lord, to anoint his lips of clay, that he would speak as thus saith the Lord this morning and not of himself. Lord, we thank you for your word that is able to do a complete work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen and amen. Perhaps there's no book within all the Old Testament that has a more special place in our hearts than the book of Psalms. Amen. Uh, when I was a little kid, uh, I gave my heart to the Lord at the uh, age of 16. And, um, you know, uh, we just fell in love immediately. I fell in love with the Word of God. And so, uh, day in, day out, uh, during my schooling days, I would carry the Gideon's Bible. You know those Gideon pocket Bibles? And I would actually place it in my left pocket and I would walk around like I was some clerical priest or something, <laughs> you know, and it became kind of a fashion trend amongst those who were serving the Lord, those who were Christians at that age, we'd have, you know, those white Bibles, uh, uh, Gideon pocket-sized Bibles, I had a blue one, I had a friend who had an orange cover, I was so jealous of that orange cover, the Bible, uh, but that Bible contained the New Testament, but along with the New Testament, it contained the book of Psalms. And there's an indication that the book of Psalms is a cherished book in the life of the believer. And you kind of ask yourself, why, why is the book of Psalms so cherished? You know, why does it hold a special place in the hearts of many Christians? Well, if you've been through the Psalms, you will find that, you know, the Psalms speak to the ups and downs of life. 
You know, you can find a psalm for every experience of your life. You know, there were times when the psalmist wrote, uh, in times of sorrow, in times of distress, they were at the lowest places of their lives. And then there were times when they were at the highest places of their lives, times of victory and conquest, and they were filled with praise. And so you have this wide range, emotional range in the book of Psalms. And so when you get to the book of Psalms, it's important to note that when we interpret the book of Psalms, we must interpret it as man's words to God. And not necessarily God's words to man. The book of Psalms is a human response to God. And so it was John Goldingate that so aptly put it. He says, the Psalms make it possible for us to say things that are otherwise unsayable. In other words, the Psalms give us uh, permission to express our grief and anguish and complaints before God. They give us permission to lay bare our souls in conversation to God. And if you read through the book of Psalms, you'll find the psalmist in very vulnerable positions in life where they are just real and transparent with God, with a theological register, of course. And so they teach us how to approach God, that when we approach God, there's no facades. We come to him in a real and transparent way. Von Rad put it this way and said concerning the Psalms, and I quote, he says, When these saving acts of deliverance happened for Israel by the hand of God, Israel did not keep silent. Not only did she repeatedly take up a pen to recall these acts of Yahweh, in a historical document, but she also addressed Yahweh in a holy, personal way. She offered up praise to him and asked him questions and complained to him about all her sufferings. For Yahweh has not only chosen his people, has not chosen his people as a mere dumb object of his world in history, but he's chosen them to converse and speak to him. The answer for Israel, for the most part, was to come and address God in a real way, unquote. And so when we approach the book of Psalms, it's important to know that the book of Psalms was not designed to be a doctrinal treatise, uh, treaty or, or a document. Uh, the book of Psalms were designed to be songs, sacred songs. Psalms were sung, they were recited, they were chanted with the accompaniment of musical instruments. And some of the indications of this firstly is the title of the Psalms. Uh, the Hebrew title is Tehillim, which means praises, which means to, to bring praises before God. And then the English title, which we get from the Greek translation, uh, Salmoi, means the plucking of strings. And so the Psalms, when you read it in its context, are songs, sacred songs and poems that were chanted before God with the accompaniment of musical instruments. Another indication is the word selah. When you read through the book of Psalms, you will see that, uh, that, that, that inscription and word that says selah. It occurs mostly 39 times in the book of Psalms and three times in the book of Habakkuk. 
Now, translators have left that, and there's been a lot of debate as to what the term Selah means, but uh, most scholars, if not all scholars, agree that the term Selah is a musical notation, which either means to raise your voice even higher, or to repeat the words like a chorus which was previously preceding that. Another indication of the Psalms being sacred songs is uh, what Thurlock referred to as the superscriptions on the Psalms. And so you'll find uh, in a few Psalms, all the Psalms of David have a superscription uh, which gives you details about the Psalm. They will say a Psalm of David according to the lilies according to the director of music. Those historical footnotes were there and inspired, and when they wrote down the Psalms, they made the notation, the, the superscription. Okay, so these were placed there in Psalms, I believe, by divine authority. You'll find them in Psalm 4, you'll find it in Psalm 51. In fact, the superscription in Psalm 51 lets us know that, that this is David's song when he sinned with Bathsheba. So it gives us some historical reference for the psalm. And so it helps a great deal to take note of the fact that psalms were sung and there were words and conversations that men laid before God. Amen. Amen. Now let's look very quickly at the structure of the psalms. And I'll just direct Layla just to help me with uh, my presentation slide. Uh, Clint, he set the bar high the other week with his... Uh, <laughs> You know, with his uh, presentation, and so I thought, no, ma'am, I'm not going to let Pastor Prinny out, out presentation me. <laughs> so uh, here we go. Okay, firstly, you need to understand that the book of Psalms is a collection of Psalms that have been, co that have been collected over a period of a thousand years. Yeah. You've got that? Yeah. They are a collection of writings and songs that have been collected from the time of Moses right through to the time after the exile. And so you have psalms that are written in a pre-exilic era before the uh, exile of Babylon. You have psalms written during the time of Babylon. You have times, uh, psalms written after the era of Babylon. And it ranges approximately a thousand years which separates Psalm 90 and Psalm 137. Psalm 90 was the first psalm written by Moses. It's the oldest psalm. David is the most frequent contributor of the Psalms. He wrote 73 Psalms, and uh, that's why when most preachers and scholars refer to the Psalms, they refer to them in general as the Psalms of David. He was a skilled musician. He was a worshiper, anointed in, the, uh, in, in music, uh, to produce and compose music. And you have two Psalms that are connected to Solomon, that's Psalm 72 and Psalm 127. Twelve Psalms attributed to Asaph, eleven to the sons of Korah. Uh, these were uh, Levitical priests during, and families during the time. You have one attributed to Herman the Israelite. Uh, one to Ethan the Israelite, but there's little known of these two uh, musicians, and the rest of the Psalms are anonymous. Thirteen of the Psalms have titles and superscriptions with historical information. Um, all of them are attributed to David. Now, the most important thing you've got to know about the Psalms is that it's not one book. The Psalms are divided into five books. Each of the five books are separated by a doxology. So 
at the end of Psalm 41, there'll be a doxology which says, Amen and Amen. That's the indication that the book has come to an end. At the end of Psalm 72, you have another doxology which says, Amen and Amen. And that's how you know the book has closed. And then we go on to book 3, book 4, and book 5, which is also distinguished and separated by a doxology. Why five books? Why did the editor or arranger of the Psalms um, distinguish these books into five uh, categories was because the Psalms were a mirror of the law, were a mirror of the Torah. And as Moses gave five books of the law, the Psalms would reflect the nature and character of the Torah and the law of God. Amen. There are many types of Psalms. This is very, very important to note. There are Psalms of praise. These are psalms where uh, hymns are written and tributes are written in praise to God. Then you have psalms of lament. Psalms of lament uh, take up the bulk of the type of psalms there is uh, in the book of psalms, books of psalms, uh, because people like to complain. <laughs> yeah. Amen. Pe people just like to complain. These are songs that arise out of times of pain and hardship. These psalms show raw emotion. You see guys clenching their fists at God, blaming God for the situation they're in. And there's times where they just, just nag and complain against God. They cry out to God. You have individual laments and then you have communal uh, laments. They're either complaining about their enemies or complaining against God or complaining against themselves. And then you have the third type, which is Psalms of Thanksgiving. These uh, Psalms uh, are when the psalmist gives thanks to God for his deliverance and his goodness. And then you have Psalms of Trust, where the psalmist would declare his trust in God and express his personal relationship to God. And then you have Psalms of the Earthly King, also referred to as Royal Psalms. These will be Psalms that will be recited when the King ascends to the throne. Uh, they usually refer to King David, the wisdom of the King, uh, and prayers for his long life. And then we have Psalms of the Heavenly King, where the Psalmist would ascribe kingship to God and celebrate his kingship that is ruler over all the heavens and the earth and then you will have uh, what's called next wisdom psalms this in particular uh, reflects the nature of proverbs where proverbs lays down a contrast between the fool and between the wise between the righteous and the ungodly and these psalms show the contrast of people and the parts they take and the destinies that await the fool and the destinies that await the righteous. And then you have uh, what's called Torah Psalms. These Psalms focus on the law, focus on uh, the Torah. They speak of the blessings and rewards that come to those who obey the word of God. Psalm 19 is a Torah Psalm and the most popular of the Torah Psalms is Psalm 119 where every verse and every uh, word reflects the authority of the word of God. And then lastly, we have what's called uh, uh, imprecatory psalms. Uh, these psalms is where the psalmist expresses his anger towards the wicked and he announces judgment, pronounces judgment, a curse, and he invokes God's judgment and wrath and he just shows his hate 
on the nation, the foreign nations of the world that threatened the empire or nation of Israel. Now, uh, it's important to note with imprecatory psalms is that these psalms must be interpreted in the context of the Old Testament. And the grounds for imprecatory psalms relates very strongly to the time and nation of Israel and the Abrahamic covenant. And so the New Testament does not encourage us to curse our enemies. In fact, Jesus said, bless those who persecute you. You know, pray for those who despitefully use you. And so, and, and, and so these type of psalms don't fit well in the theological framework of the New Testament. Okay, that's why it's important to know the types of psalms we are reading. Amen. Or else you go out there with some biblical... Uh, support as to why you need to curse your enemies. <laughs> okay. Now the two most predominant and basic of the Psalms, uh, they take up uh, literally 60% of the Psalms, is uh, the Psalms of praise and the Psalms of lament. Okay. And you'll find the Psalms gravitate towards these two extremes. Either they're in times of, of high praise or either they're in times of great pain and lament and depression and opposite these two poles you'll find these psalmists gravitate okay and what we can learn from that is that even in times of anguish and even in times of pain and distress when life is bleak and nothing's going your way we can still praise and end off on that high note of praise amen okay the next important thing for us to know is what literary instruments are uh, involved with the book of Psalms, okay? Uh, there's a few of them. I'm just going to touch on one this morning in particular. You have what's called evocative language. That's the use where the psalmist use imagery and metaphors and similes and repetition. And, uh, and he uses diatribe. And you have all this poetic language that's accompanied with the book of Psalms, but the main uh, instrument that's used to convey uh, their songs and praise and laments is the device called parallelism. This is very, very important um, that we understand Hebrew parallelism. Now, the first type we have, or let me just define it first, it's when a common literary feature of Hebrew poetry in the Old Testament uh, in which words of two or more lines of the text directly relate to each other in some way. Now we're going to break that down. First you have what's called synonymous, uh, synonymous parallelism. This is when the same thought is expressed in the second line of, of, the, of the thought in different words. So you'll have here Psalm 19 verses 1 to 2. The heavens are telling the glory of the Lord. That's line 1. And the firmament proclaims his handiwork. It's phrased differently, but it's the same thought. Yeah. You see that? Yeah. Are you still with me, Judge? Yeah. 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 Doesn't feel like we're in grade 12 again. Okay? No, this, this is fine. Are no, you with me? Are you still with me? Okay. Another example of this still in uh, Psalm 9 is uh, verses 2. Day to day pours forth speech. This is from God. And night to night declares knowledge. It's the same thought, just expressed in different ways. Okay, that's called synonymous parallelism. Okay, you'll find it everywhere in the Psalms, even scattered throughout this Old Testament and New Testament. 
Okay. Then we have antithetical parallelism. Okay, this is when the first thought is emphasized by a contrasting thought in the second line. An example of this is Psalm 73 verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, line one. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This thought, my flesh and my heart may fail, and he has a contrasting thought that emphasizes or sheds light on the first thought. But God is the strength of my heart. Amen. Amen. Then we have what's called synthetic parallelism. This is when the second line explains or further develops the ideas of the first line. Okay? This is Psalms 24, verse 3 to 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Uh, note, note verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul. Now it gives further details yeah. and information around this thought. So what does it mean to have clean hands and a pure heart? He who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Okay, uh, That's a synthetic parallelism. And then we have what's called a climactic parallelism. That's when the second line repeats itself, but with an exception of a few terms of the last terms. An example of this is Psalm 96 verse 7. Give to the Lord. Your translation might say ascribe to the Lord. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Can you see the difference? Yeah. It kind of pulls up from families to giving him glory. Okay. And that's what we call climatic uh, parallelism. And then lastly, we have what's called uh, emblematic parallelism. This is when the features of the main point, or it features the main point on the first or second line along with uh, an image. Okay. So there's a, a metaphor, a picture that uh, kind of, comes alongside the second thought or first thought. So here we have Psalm 103, verses 11 to 13. This is a popular one. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. Can you see the picture? The heavens high above the earth. That's the picture. That's the illuminating image. Verse 12. As far as the east is from the west. That's the picture. So far has his, he removed our transgressions from us. And you see the picture in verse 13. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. All three emblematic parallelisms in one psalm. And, and, and that's the language and the literary instruments that the psalms uses. Amen. Okay. Now to divert very quickly. Um, on our Bible topic this morning, uh, Pastor Quincy, if you could just move my um, uh, pulpit chair, please. Thank you. Now, we said earlier that, uh, if you could just put the projector off for a moment, we said earlier that the name Psalms comes from the Greek word salmoi. Uh, did we say that? Yes. Okay, and salmoi means the striking or plucking of stringed instruments. Now, it's important to note that music has always been part of creation. From the inception of creation, the Bible tells us in Job 38 that the morning stars sung and the heavenly beings shouted for joy. So when God created the earth and formed us, there was a sound of music. 
right to the consummation of the ages in Hebrews 5, sorry, in Revelations 5, the scripture tells us that we'll all be gathered around the throne crying out and singing, worthy is the Lamb. Music is part of creation, integrated into the order of creation. All we do as humans is participate with nature. Because all the heavens declare his glory. And all of creation sings his praise and declares his beauty and honor. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, his name is praised. From the lily of the valley to the chirping of the birds and the sparrows, his name is praised. In fact, Jesus said, if you don't praise him, the rocks will cry out. Music is a gift from God. There are many musical, musical instruments, many instruments of music, over 1,500 different musical instruments divided into categories of, of, of wind instruments, percussion instruments, brass instruments, keyboards, there's the guitar family, there's the ukulele, the bass guitar, the electric guitar, the banjo, the piano, the synthesizer, the cello, the horn, the flute, the violin, the drums, the per percussions, the cajon, the list is endless. There's even a tambourine for you punksters out here. There are a lot of instruments of music. There's also the instruments of nature. There are over 10 known animals that sing. There's the nightingale, the northern, northern mockingbird, there's the Latin songbird, there's the robin, there's the humpback whale that sings, there's the beluga whale that is termed the sea canary that sings. There are frogs that sing, the spring peeper, the Pacific tree frog that sings, the toad fish that sing, the crickets that sing, the squirrels and various insects that make melody and songs in nature. The list is endless. In fact, from time to time, you'll be waken, woken up with the howling of dogs in your street. <laughs> the list of music from nature and animals are endless. But one musical instrument that God prioritizes the most is the human voice. Ah, come on somebody. It is still an enigma to me that we can come together as a church and still see two-thirds of you just standing still like this. Oh, Lord help us. God help us. There's nothing that he values and prizes and esteems more than the human voice the church that sings, the born-again, blood-washed child of God that sings his praises or her praises to a savior. You don't have to be in perfect pitch or key or even in perfect harmony. Sometimes you don't even need to know all the words of the song, but if you can just pass out and sing and praise. My wife will tell you sometimes I sound like a cat that's being butchered in the shower. But nothing is going to stop my God, me from praising my God. Amen. Here are some quick facts about music. Firstly, music can help you concentrate and work better. You can ask the student who's preparing for a science exam. You can ask the bodybuilder who's about to pump some weights. 
Music helps you concentrate and perform better. In fact, if you might turn on some my Manhattans on your date night, things might get a little bit more spicy. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Come on. Music helps change your perception and moods. Perhaps one of the most fascinating psychological discoveries about music is that music affects the way that you view the world. True. Music affects your stress levels, and science has shown and proven that music even affects your heart rhythm and beat. Music, it was discovered by researchers in a study done in South Korea, even affects plant life. Plants that were exposed to music, classical music, grew faster and healthier than the plants who weren't exposed to music. That's the power of music. Doctors had, and researchers had even published in the research journal of the Neuropsychological Rehabilitation Center and shared these details that music even has the power to recall memories in people who have been severely brain damaged. That's the power of music. Babies can hear music in your womb. And I remember as a little kid, um, I know Roscoe don't listen to this music no more. Hey man, he used, we used to sit in the car with him and, and he used to drive us around and he used to play, you know, those heavy beats, uh, Eminem and, and Nas and all these gangs. And then for some reason, Roscoe's foot would just get heavy on the accelerator. <laughs> That's the power of music, family. So pay attention to what music you listen to and pay serious attention to your praise. Next time we have church, clap. Next time we have church, dance, sing. Don't stand around it like you've been baptized in lemon juice in the name of depression. It's important what music you listen to in your car. It's important what music you listen to in your home. You might just facilitate an experience with God if one day you decide to play gospel music the entire week in your home. Your kids will start repeating the melodies and the words. Amen. Okay, let's get into the text. Psalm 1. Can I get the projector back up? Can I move you? Yes, thank you. Okay, let's all look at uh, Psalm 1 very quickly. Okay, the first thing we need to do when we approach Psalm 1 is that we need to determine what kind of psalm this is. Is the lament psalm? Is the psalm of praise? Is it imprecatory psalm? And scholars have all agreed that this psalm can either be viewed as a Torah psalm because it makes reference to the law, the blessed and righteous man who delights in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates both day and night. Uh, but others have suggested that it's rather a wisdom psalm because it has all the features of a wisdom psalm. And I'm of the opinion 
and persuasion that Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm because wisdom psalms are didactic, they're practical in nature, and they reflect and draw our attention to the Word of God and the law of God. They also lay down a contrast of what's known as the doctrine of two paths, the doctrine of two parts. Okay? This is very, very important to know in Scripture because it can be traced, this teaching, from the Garden of Eden right through to the teachings of Jesus, okay? Now, when we refer to the doctrine of two parts, it's important to know that these parts are antithetical. They are totally opposite from each other. They are seen as two diametrically opposed parts, two opposed extremes, okay? So, we presented with two antithetical categories of man it's either you are righteous or it's either you are wicked it's either you are wise or foolish you godly or ungodly and the reason why the word of god lays down this teaching of two parts is because when judgment comes and when we all are met with judgment there is only going to be two types of judgments. There's going to be what the scripture teaches as the white throne of judgment. That's the judgment for the ungodly where God turns into the book of life and he doesn't find your name there. In fact, the book of life is empty because when the ungodly appear at the white throne of judgment, they search through the book and there's no name. And then there's what the belief that the judgment that the believers will face is called the judgment seat of Christ, where the, what's decided is not whether we go to heaven or hell. No, that was decided when you gave your heart to Jesus. Yes. But now your works will be tested. Your motives and the words, every idle word you spoke will pass through the fire and Christ will judge us. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, he who believes in me will pass judgment into life. In other words, you will pass that white throne seat of judgment into life. Okay. And so with the doctrine of two parts, two ways of life are illustrated and laid down. You either the wicked or you either the righteous. You either the wise or the fool. And you are either on the path of life or you are on the path that leads to destruction. And at the end of each part, there is a fate that awaits the righteous. There is a fate that awaits the wicked. You either a sheep or you a goat. And Jesus taught and laid down this doctrine and teaching. And he taught the doctrine of two ways. He said, you're either with me or you're against me. He who does not gather scatters. And he says... There is a narrow way that leads to life. And there is a broad way that leads to destruction. And many are they that lead to destruction. And the dividing factor between the narrow path and the broad path, or the path of life and the path to destruction, is the word of God. That's the dividing factor here. Because as you will note in Psalms 1, the factor that separates the blessed righteous man from the wicked and that separates the counsel of the wicked from the commandments is the word of God. 
and how we respond to the word of God. And so in Psalm 1, the law of God is what divides the righteous from the wicked. Okay, because the scripture says in verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates both day and night. It's the word of God that separates the sheep from the goats. And Jesus said in Matthew 10, don't suppose that I came to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword to divide the sheep from the goats. And how you respond to the word of God on this side of life determines what path you are on. Amen. Amen. Now let's, uh, when we're dealing with Psalms, we have to break up the Psalms in strophes or stanzas or, or, or what they call pericopes or versets. So from, when we look at, at Psalm 1, we are looking at six verses, and these six verses are divided in three stanzas. You'll see this here. So from verses 1 to 3, this represents and presents to us the picture and description of the blessed righteous man. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates both day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in a season, whose leaf shall also not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. And then we have the second thought or, or sub-theme uh, and set of verses, uh, which now gives us the description of the ungodly and unrighteous man. Uh, and it says, uh, the godly from verse 4 are not so. Now we get to talk about the ungodly. But all, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And then verse 6 is our closing summary. This is the theological axis of Psalm 1. This tells you what psalm it is. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Amen. Amen. And so we're going to look at these verses in these three approaches. Okay. So if you're going to be a good interpreter of the Bible, if you want to understand the Bible, <coughs> you must come to terms with terms. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. You must be able to define and understand what terms mean. The worst mistake you will make is, is grasping a definition of what a word means based off what everybody else in church or, or Christendom or the world believes it to be. And I suspect, uh, you know, in the contemporary Christian age that we live in, we all have some preconceived ideas about what it means to be blessed. Yeah. Yeah. Because some of us here are thinking, blessed means houses and cars. Yeah. Mm. Mm. I'll, I'll always laugh. Uh, it's kind of like a in more of an inside. Not even a, uh, you know, those kind of jokes. It's more like a me and Zoe joke. You know, sometimes, you know, Zoe, uh, Zoe is very busy on social media, you know? <laughs> uh, and she's made me also busy on social media. <laughs> okay, let me just play my cards right. <laughs> okay. And uh, you look at Facebook, 
And I, and I had someone approach me some, some time back and said, man, I wish I had a life like yours. I said, brother. I, I know it looks nice on Facebook. I know it looks nice on social media. I know these kids look gorgeous. And, you know, and then we're we putting on our best on, on Facebook. But we're not going to tell you sad stories. Who's going to tell you sad stories on fa social media? You know? And I say, you know what? Just probe a little deeper. Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. Life is not what was cursory. You know, so, so you know, we've got to get rid of the preconceived ideas of what it means to really be blessed. What does the term blessed here really mean? Don't start with the Oxford Dictionary. Start with the Hebrew. Because the scriptures in the Old Testament were written 95% uh, of the time in Hebrew and the rest in Aramaic. Okay? So the term blessed in Hebrew is the word ashray. Okay? Don't nobody get triggered here when I say, well, it doesn't sound like ashtray. You know? <laughs> or nobody get triggered and want a, a quick puff outside, okay? Ashray, okay? The term is translated happy. But Boyce tells us that the Hebrew is in plural form, which speaks to the multiplicity and the blessings that accompany the term happy. So the word Ashrei in Hebrew conveys more of an idea of having inner peace, inner joy, and being in a state of well-being. So in other words, you cannot be on the path of destruction and be blessed. Because being blessed means you are in a state of well-being. You having a good job and a fancy title and all your needs met and, and all these external you know, uh, accompaniments to your life and you know, a high paying salary does not imply that you are blessed and in a state of well-being. And so the term Ashley carries the idea of being blessed beyond external circumstances or having material possessions. It refers to being in a state of well-being and a place of joy and peace in spite of your circumstances. And Pastor Clinty mentioned this earlier, if you were listening, you know, uh, that, that you know, we are, we are, Paul was prison, in prison. He was chained for the gospel. He referred to himself as the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. He probably didn't get the best of meals. He didn't have the softest of beds. He probably slept in a cold, you know, uh, wet dungeon. He was chained to a Roman a centurion soldier. He didn't know what, his, what the few, next few weeks or days uh, held for him in court as he would stand before Caesar. But no one could argue that Paul wasn't blessed. Mm. He was blessed. He was happy to be a prisoner. Yes. And so that's what, what the term blessed imp implies. You are in a place of well-being. And it is no accident that the first term of the Bible is the word blessed. Because it conveys something about the heart of God. That God wants us to be in a state of well-being. 
This is a theme that runs throughout the book of Psalms. This term lets you know from the get-go what God's desire for your life is. He wants you to be in a place and state of well-being. Amen. Okay. Now, encoded in Psalm 1 are the keys to this blessed life. Are the keys to, be, to coming to a place of joy and peace and well-being. The first thing I want to mention to you and bring your attention to is the phrase, blessed is the man. Doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't it sound like Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 5, where he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst of the righteousness, for they, they shall be filled. So what Jesus did is radically expand someone to speak about what it means to be blessed. And so you cannot read Psalm 1 without thinking of the Beatitudes. And if you read through the entire Psalms, you'll find out that over 13 times this phrase occurs, blessed is the man. And so what Jesus did was he fully developed this thought of being blessed in Matthew chapter 5 when he began to speak on the Beatitudes. And then we will see as we venture further into Psalm 1, the psalmist now gives us a description of how the blessed man conducts himself. And he lets us into a strong quality of this blessed man and of the, of the righteous. Firstly, the Bible says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates both day and night. He is showing us a quality of the righteous that the righteous know what to say no to. And they know what to say yes to. In other words, they are able to distinguish truth from error. They are able to distinguish between what's a godly biblical principle and what's an ungodly philosophy. They are able to tell you what's an ungodly worldview and what's a biblical worldview. They are able to distinguish between the wisdom of this world and the wisdom that comes from above. The first quality and, and, and characteristic we have to have if we want to live this wholesome, blessed life is that we must be discerning. We must be able to tell the difference between the counsel of the ungodly and the commandments of the Lord. Discernment is defined as the ability to see things for what they really are the way God sees it, and not for what you want it to be. And we're living in an age of deception. This is the mark 
of the last days. When the disciples asked Jesus, what will be the signs of the times? The first words he utters is, be not deceived. Beware of deception. We cannot afford not to be undiscerning in these times. And some of you get those, you know, those inboxes on Facebook. It says, hey, I can make you a millionaire on Bitcoin and Facebook and, and Forex and and you get those Russian ladies inboxing you and you want to pack, sell everything you have and, and move to Europe. <laughs> we have to be more discerning than that. Amen. Amen. When you see high dear in your inbox, don't fall in love. We have to become more discerning. And I don't know if it's an issue uh, with, with, the, with males, but, but ladies have a strong radar. Yeah. yeah, like we discussed at our marriage uh, program. You know, yeah. MMI, Pastor Wayne will fill you in more on the details. But but sometimes ladies have ladies have this instinct and you know this intuition that's very discerning. They'll say, hey, watch, out. "Watch out for that one." I just I just feel something about that one. Yeah? <laughs> just feel something. I I know he's your friend, but I just something just doesn't resonate with me. And yeah, we're like, ah, man, you're just over-exaggerating again. Yeah. But most of the trouble we find ourselves in is because we have been undiscerning. Yeah. Secondly, this man understands the power of no. Mm -hmm. yeah. These wicked and ungodly and sinful men tried to persuade him. Mm -hmm. May have tried to lure him down the path of destruction, but he knew when to say no and what to say no to. And not only did he have the ability to say no, he had the ability to back it up. Because some of us are like, no, 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 not today, not today. And then a few hours later, we see you, hey. <laughs> 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 And then we're like, but you said you're not going. Yeah. But you said. And then afterwards, uh, Dean put it right, FOMO. <laughs> FOMO crept in. There must be a power behind your no. And let me tell you something from my experience. Is that saying no is one of the bravest things you'll have to do in your life. And sometimes it's the most painful thing you have to say in your life. Yeah. Because you have to say no to sometimes people you care about. You have to say no to something you've been desiring for a long time. Sometimes you have to say no to something that might bring you closer to your dreams. And they'll say, here's the business deal. But I just need you just to, you know. And sometimes you have to say no. And what makes saying no and standing up for your no so difficult is that the most painful thing is that you have to learn to say no to yourself. Yeah. Sometimes you have to say no to people who are in an apparent need. You know? And I used to always say yes. I used to be like the yes man. You know? Ask me to walk up Kilimanjaro with you, I'd do it. 
And then the Lord said, no, 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 boy, you need a wife. <laughs> you need a wife. They kept on giving, you know, as the gift of the give givers. And then my wife said, but this is the second time this month. <laughs> you know, the third time. When are you going to learn? What about the home? What about our cupboards? You out here trying to be Santa Claus and you can't even buy bread money. You know, and when I was, uh, when I was a little uh, a boy, I got saved at 16, there was this uncle uh, in the street. Uh, uh, some of you, I suspect, are from, uh, from uh, Woodlands, Peter Marisburg, maybe. Uh, but there was this uncle, uh, we called him Uncle Lippy. You know, this is his nickname, Lippy. You know, uh, but as a young kid, we grew up admiring Uncle Lippy. You know, he was that uncle that walked around in the, in the street with, uh, you know, topless, you know flexing his uh, you know, Somalian arms, <laughs> you know, and he was just so bold and brave and out there and looked like the ladies liked him and a good-looking uncle and, you know, as a little boy, he said, hey, boy, go buy me a quart of beer, you know, go give, give me a beer there and we'd run off and we and we'd get him a beer, you know, and we, we made Uncle Lippy happy, he said, thank you, boy, give us a five rand and we felt so proud, you know, uh, we associated with, with Uncle Lippy, we did Uncle Lippy a favor, you know, with Uncle Lippy's good books. And then, lo and behold, I gave my heart to Jesus. And Uncle Lippy said, Boy, why don't you go get me a, a quart of beer there? And I'm like, Hey, Uncle Lippy. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I can't do that. What you mean, boy? You've always done it. I said, Ah, nah. nah. I said, Things have changed, Uncle Lippy. <laughs> I can't be seen here at the tavern anymore. Why, boy? What's wrong? I said, No, I'm saved now. I'm saved from what? Saved from God. <laughs> from God you have to know and you have to be able to say no no is your instrument of integrity some of us have gotten ourselves into a huge mess simply because we couldn't say no and stand by our nose that's how you guard your well-being it's how you guard your peace and one of the toughest things to do as a parent is say no to your kids and one day they'll fully understand it but life and parenting teaches you the power of no and I always say this in my home if our kids don't know or don't learn to experience the no's in our home and the disappointments in our home and I say I have five daughters one day a boy they like is going to say no <laughs> and then they're going to want to go and hang themselves or throw themselves off the bridge. Yeah. See, no, you learn your disappointments in our home, yeah. in a managed environment. Yeah. We tell you we love you, we still put food in your mouth and feed you every day, still pay for your school fees and take you wherever you want to go. But no. There's a power and a guiding light in the words no. Yeah. Okay. Thirdly, the power behind this man's no and the power behind his ability to discern can be directly attributed to one thing. His delight in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates both day and night. That's where he gets the power to back up his nose. Yes. He doesn't want to hurt or grieve or disappoint his creator. He's been meditating on the word of God. 
and his discernment has been heightened and sharpened by his meditation in the word of God and he's able to distinguish right from wrong. He's even able to distinguish what's good from what's best. His delight is in the teachings of God's word and in his law he meditates both day and night. Now I don't want you to miss the relationship between his desire and his meditation because he loves to meditate in the law and he loves the law but his love and his passion and his delight for the word of God is also derived from his meditation. In other words, you have to fuel your love for the Word of God. Yeah. Picking up the Bible for the first time is not the most exciting thing to do. Yeah. Where do you start? Where do you begin? What does this mean? Am I understanding this correctly? But what he does is he picks up the book and he begins to meditate on it. And it's important to know that the more you pay attention to the Word of God, the more you start enjoying the Word of God. Attraction is developed by attention. If you pay attention to tall, dark, and handsome all the time, you're only going to want to be in the arms of tall, dark, and handsome. Whatever you pay attention to fuels your attraction. And don't miss this, that attention is the world's most valuable asset companies are paying billions for seconds of your attention seconds of your attention companies understand that if they're going to accelerate in the marketplace they have to pay the price to get your attention they have to create awareness and they have to be visible they are fighting for your attention attention is the most valuable asset in the world today attention can be defined as what you choose to focus on and what you choose to ignore you don't have a love for the Word of God because you don't pay attention to the Word of God. Period. You don't give it the time of day. You attract what you pay attention to. And now what's very important to know is that he delights in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates. That's the key operative word here. He meditates in the Word of God. Now, back in the Old Covenant days, there were not many copies of the law. There were not many copies of the Torah. Everything was copied by hand. And we are living in a spoiled age. We are spoiled rotten. You can click download a Bible app and you can have a hundred different translations of the Bible. You can walk into Kumbuk stores, you can buy yourself a soft cover leather Bible, you can buy yourself a hard cover, you can choose what colors you want, pink, purple, blue, you even get a leopard skin cover. You can go online and order a Bible to come to your home ranging from a hundred rand to a thousand rand to two. You can even get a free Bible somewhere. But these men and women of this time had no little access to the word. So what they would do is when they get hold of a copy, they would recite it. They would memorize yards and yards of passages and landscape of scripture. Commit to memory. Psalm 119 that has so many verses. 
You know Psalm 119? Yeah. It has like over 135 verses, if I'm not mistaken. It was written in Hebrew acrostic. Every letter of every verse set was in a Hebrew alphabet in succeeding order, all the way from Aleph to Tav. And the reason why it was written that way is to aid memorization. In other words, there were some folk walking around in this time that could recite to you the whole of Psalm 119. Man, I can barely remember my street address. <laughs> but they used to commit large portions of scripture to memory. The Hebrew word here is haga, which means to cool like a dove, it means to growl like a lion. And you'll still see Hebrews and Jews practice it to the day when they at the, you know, at that wall in, in, in Israel, they, they would mutter, you know, uh, blessed is the man who walks you know, in the council of Dangali, you know, uh, that stands in the part of sinners, sits in the seat of the scoffer, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law, his law, not my law, his law. In his law, in his law, he meditates both day and night. They, they back and forth day and night as they're walking from point A to point B. They are trying to graft the word of God into their minds and hearts. And so when, when they read or study or meditate on the word, they begin to fuse God's thoughts with their thoughts. They begin to attract the mind of God into their minds. Will we get to a place as Christians where we read, meditate, and study the Word of God to such a point where we begin to instinctively and habitually think from the mind of Christ? So why the scripture says in Romans 12, Paul is pleading with the church. He's, plead, he's begging them. He says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, not being conformed to this world, not walking in the path of sinners, not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind and so here we have the psalmist bringing our attention to the realm of thinking to the realm of behaving and to the realm of belonging because the righteous man and people depart in three degrees you first depart in your mind so he chooses not to consider the counsel or advice or principles or philosophies of this world because if we go wrong as a people and as believers we go wrong here sure. so it's not the mind that is the playground and the battleground of the devil it's the passive mind yeah. the mind that is not engaged in the art of meditation sure. that becomes vulnerable and the breeding ground for Satan and we depart, when we depart in the mind and in our thinking, we depart in our behavior because part speaks to behavior. <laughs> and when we depart in our behavior, we start to identify with the scornful. Yeah. We now sit down and we have a sense of belonging. Yeah. We depart in thinking first, then behavior, and then belonging. Now we see ourselves with the wicked. Yeah. I'm just like them. 
they're just like me. We comrades. Now let's move on to our second point. Verse 8. Now the psalmist brings us to the attention of the ungodly. And it's a sharp contrast. He says the ungodly are not so. They're not like the righteous. But are like the chaff which the wind drives away. And therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. One thing that the psalmist does not apologize for. He does not apologize to bringing, for bringing our attention to the fact that there are ungodly, wicked scoffers in this world. And if you think everybody, everybody is good for you, you're making a grave mistake. Because the psalmist is telling us that there are wicked, sinful men and women out there. And they don't want to enjoy their sin in isolation. Because misery loves company. And these ungodly, wicked people are characterized by their thinking and by their behavior. And the agenda of these people is to lure you away from doing what is right and bring you into a drug house and bring you into a casino and bring you into a bad business deal and bring you into poor life decisions and bring you into adultery and bring you into fraud and bring you into a nightclub and, 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 and just fill your life with one bad decision after the next and you could probably look back over your life and see where it went wrong and if you look back long enough you'll probably see a bad relationship connected to the bad decisions they're trying to lure you away from your faith in God they'll first get you to question your beliefs they'll first get you to doubt God and they'll get you to doubt God in moments where you need to believe Him the most. They're out there even in the educational system, in schools. Boys and girls that you think are your friends. Luring you away from your schoolwork. Luring you away from friends that are good for you and bringing division. Pay attention to ungodly ways and ungodly people. They come in all shapes and sizes and they come in array an array of ages. These people see no wrong in what they are doing. They call good evil and they call evil good. Notice take you back to, to verse 1 we've got 10 more minutes Bible says blessed is the man this term in Hebrew is singular it refers to the numerical number 1 in Hebrew these terms 
or in plural, the ungodly, the sinners, the scornful. You have one man up against the masses. And the psalmist is telling us that the path to righteousness is less traveled. When you decide to stand up for God and live righteously, you are the minority. Jesus said there are few that travel by the narrow way. This whole world is not going to heaven. No, 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 no. The majority of this world is damned for destruction. And so to be a believer in Christ, you have to come to terms that often it's going to be one against the many. Because it's easy to sin. It's easy to walk by the, the broad way. It's difficult to stand up for God. Because of our sin natures. Let me tell you, it's even easy to make money when it's illegal. It's easy to get what you want. When, it's, when it involves wickedness and ungodliness. But God calls the righteous to stand up against the majority. Yeah. Amen. Amen. What you don't see here is there is a what they call a developing acrostic, okay? So what that simply means is the psalmist, hey, Uncle Mark, we're going back to school. Uh, the psalmist used the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet in the term blessed, which is Aleph, Ashrei, Aleph. And then the last term he used, Perish, is the letter Tav. He starts off with A and he ends off with Z. He starts off with blessed and he ends off with perished. This is a Hebrew psalm, uh, a wisdom psalm. He's showing us the contrast between the blessed and the ungodly that their lives must be as far as from A to Z. That's how far apart their lives must look. In other words, when I bump into you and you're a believer, you must not sound like an unbeliever. You must not use the same expletives and vulgarity as the unbeliever. Heck, you mustn't even dress like an unbeliever. Now, I don't mean you must dress like Granny, you know, Oma Joe, you know. I was going to try and think of a, of a name, but then I was probably going to eat one of your names, and then I'm in trouble of the church. <laughs> like, I, you know, I, I, oh, Lord. 
but, but you must dress and conduct yourself even in your dress code. You can't have all your junk slipping out as a child of God. And as most, I feel sorry for the men on Father's Day especially. Let me just say this here. You know, unless I'm seeing men walk around showing their nipples and, you know, and showing their muscles, you know, their bellies showing and you just... But especially on the part of the ladies. Man, a guy can't even drive to the shop. Huh? We can't even flip through a TV sh show. Huh? We can't even close our eyes at night. All these graphic images glued to our minds. And as children and women of God, we've got to even represent God in our dress and attire. You can't be showing all this. You know, thunder thighs and... <laughs> Come on, man. Our behavior has got to be as far as A to Z. Others, we don't retaliate the way the ungodly retaliates. I know it's difficult driving down on deckers and taxis or catching you. But the faith and the word of God requires more from you. Yes. You are held by a higher standard. Amen. Don't use grace as a crutch. Yeah. You are held by a higher standard. How many minutes did I say I have left? Ten. ten. Okay, we have another ten left. Yeah. <laughs> I'm joking. Okay. Okay, another example of uh, acrostic uh, letters is in Psalm 19, which I mentioned to you. Psalm 19 um, contains 22 Hebrew letters in, in the alphabet in successive order. Okay. Um, okay, so you see the vivid contrast between the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, let's conclude. Um, I meant to tell you that the Psalms... The Psalms don't begin with Psalm 1 and 2. Okay, that's what I mean to tell you. Psalm 1 and 2 are the foundational introductions to the Psalms. The Psalms actually begin at Psalm 3. Okay, and, and, and the reason why it was arranged like that is because uh, of the focus of Psalm 1 and the focus of Psalm 2. Now, the focus of Psalm 1 is the Torah, the Word of God, right? And the focus of Psalm, Psalm 2 is the anointed one that will come into power, which the writers of the New Testament attribute to Christ, where the Father said, uh, you are my son. You know? uh, and the Lord said to, to my Lord, sit at my, my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so it says, kiss the son, least he be angry. And so it's a messianic psalm, Psalm 2. And he put those two psalms in the beginning to set the tone for the rest of the psalms. Okay? It, in, in kind of communicating to us that uh, if you if you want to understand the kingdom of God, you have to understand the law, but not the law without the Messiah. Yeah. Because the law is incomplete without the promise of the Messiah. Amen. Okay, and so the law in itself served the purpose. In that uh, Paul says in Galatians, it was a tutor bringing us to Christ. Okay, and that's why he lays down these two pillars. Uh, in the book of Psalms, uh, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, to bring us uh, and to set the stage and tone for the law and the Messiah. And you'll find that the entire Psalms speak to the themes of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. It speaks to the law and it speaks to the Messiah. Amen. And so what every preacher 
must do, and this, this is my conviction, what every preacher needs to do is need, we need to ask the question, how does Psalm 1 reveal Christ? What does Psalm 1 teach about Christ? Just as the shepherds sought for Jesus in a little manger in Bethlehem, so too must we preachers seek for Christ in every passage of Scripture. Because Scripture is the cradle in which Christ is laid. He is the center of the revelation of God. So he must be the centerpiece of the sermon. So how was Christ revealed and taught in Psalm 1? What does the gospel tie in and connect to Psalm 1? Okay. Now, some, some scholars argue that Psalm 1 is idealistic. You know, it's, it's written in an allegorical sense to be a standing temple. Like Psalm 31, the virtuous woman, you know? Uh, Proverbs 31, sorry. <laughs> Proverbs 31, you know? Uh, so it's like a high standard for women to, to reach to, you know? But almost impossible, <laughs> you know? And then you have Psalm 1 with this high standard. So, so some scholars are arguing that this psalm is idealistic, and, and that's up for debate. But I want you to see that between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, there is a connection. Because Psalm 1 speaks of the blessed man, you know, that delights in the law of the Lord and meditates in the law of the Lord. And then the blessed man speaks to man in singular form. And in Psalm 2 speaks about the Messiah, the anointed one. And since these two were, were, have much in common, Jonathan Black, scholar quoted and said that Psalm 1 is not about a man or a people in general or even a person in general. Psalm 1 is about a specific man. And there is only truly one man that fits the ideal perfectly of a blessed, whole, righteous man. And his name is Jesus. And this man is the man that stands in the crossroads between the path of life and the path of destruction. He's the bridge between life and death. He's the bridge between the fool and the wise. He's the bridge between condemnation and salvation. He is the bridge. He is the bridge. And he said, I set before you life and death. But I urge you. I urge you choose life. There's a vivid contrast between the righteous and the ungodly and it's explained in metaphor where the psalmist says the righteous man is like a tree as planted by the riverside and which brings fruit in its season and whatever he touches will prosper he's like a tree that's planted stable growing and fruitful and the wicked and ungodly are compared to the chaff against the wind. The total opposite of a tree is chaff. 
taken by the wind no connection to the earth yeah. unstable no growth no promise of fruitfulness unstable in all your ways no spiritual fruit how shall you know them you shall know them by their fruits yeah. and he's asking for fruit there is a bridge and there is a man at the crossroads of the path of destruction the path of life and his name is Jesus he is the blessed one when he said blessed is the pure and, and, and the blessed are those who hung in thirst it was an autobiography of his life he is that blessed man amen can we stand can we stand this morning Amen. Could I have the projector off, please? Everybody's eyes 